Well, it's um, awesome to be here. Um, first time visiting you guys, and um, I've been here for chapel, but uh, never for church, and what a blessing it is. If you, it's your first time here, welcome you, um, and it's awesome, awesome opportunity, cool series you guys, I've got a privilege to kick off with, um, studying the life of David. Um, it's my personal favorite Bible character, so it worked out well when Sharon was like, hey, you want to talk on David? And I was like, yeah, not a problem, I, I love it. Problem is, there's so much in the life of David. Uh, the biggest portion of scripture is assigned to David and his life, which is cool because you get to see so much about the character, uh, whether you walk through him in the Psalms, it's almost like you're reading his personal devotional journal, uh, or you're following his stories from Samuel, Chronicles, Kings, all different perspectives, and the lineage and linger of David and his life follows all the way right through to Jesus. So if you're ever wondering where David and Jesus have any type of connection, it's, it's come through lineage um, out of the house of David. Um, and so there's this beautiful picture of what we're going to look at. But I get to, to launch the series of David and I'm excited because it's my actual favorite part of David's story, um, where it all begins. So I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles. If you've got a Bible, smartphone or a smart friend, um, you'll need them because we're going to be in 1 Samuel um, chapter 16. So we're in the Old Testament, front part of the Bible. Um, if you hit Kings, you've gone too far. First uh, Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Entitled this morning's sermon, The Reluctant Hero. We're going to be looking at pretty much chapter 16 and 17 this morning. We won't go too much into 17 because that's next week's, but you can't really do 17 without looking at 16 or vice versa. Let's see if I can get this PowerPoint going. Look, uh, I'm going to make this easy for you. We're going to look at the geography of the story. We don't often look at the geography, but the geography is important as we look through these two um, two pictures of Scripture. And I'm going to highlight, we're going to look at why David spends so much time in the field. Why David spends so much time in the field. We kick off in... 16, chapter 16, in verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, he's the prophet rolling around. So we've got this real mixture of stuff that's going on in Israel. Israel finally got its first king. Um, and they went for the best-looking guy, um, and they went, went for the heads and shoulders above. They went for the shallow king. Like, yeah, he had a connection with God, but he was all show, no substance. And the problem is, he gets to the gets to the throne, he becomes in charge, and his head gets so big, he just completely loses the plot. And then Samuel and him have it in the car park, fight it out, and say, mate, I'm sick of you stuffing around God, because you keep going and doing your own thing, then come back and think you could throw a few lambs on the barbecue and call it a sacrifice, and we're good. He wants obedience. He doesn't just want sacrifice. Stop stuffing him around. And then, you know... Um, Saul and his stupidity falls down and rips the garment of the prophet Samuel and he's like, mate, you've just ripped a portion of your kingdom out right there. And Samuel walks off like he's some Jedi, just like, and, and then it's like, what's going on? And there's this tension because Samuel was always in charge until Saul came along. Israel used to operate on the role of prophets, but now they've got kings and now you've got this prophet and king tension going on and God is leading and working and poor... Samuel, I feel for Samuel because the poor guy had to put up with Saul's shocking behavior and stuff like this and had to ride out the years. And I don't know if you've had to ride out years where it's been difficult um, and other people have been around, but Samuel had to ride it out. 
But then there's hope, because in verse 16, oh, chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, get over Saul. That's essentially what he says, get over it. Stop grieving about Saul. I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. I've provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul heals it, hears it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer and you say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So, go. I found a king. I love the confidence of God. I found a king. Straight up. It's not like, oh, I found a future king. I found someone in waiting. I found someone. Ex- I found a king. I think there's some guys out there who wish they had that certainty where it says, I found a wife. Like the, that certainty out there. And, and it says in verse 6, he came. Um, and he comes up to Jesse and he essentially says, hey, I want to sacrifice a few things. And by the way, bring all your boys in because... We've got an opportunity here to, to source out who the king is. A bit like The Bachelor, they all line up. Um, Rose is out there except the horn of oil, and he's like, all right, let's do this. Until the point where we get, in verse 6, he came and he looked at Elab and thought, this is it. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I want to pause there for a moment, because there's times in life where we, we get quite shallow, and we, we, we're all about scouting talent, we're all about, we're in the, what we call the poaching season for pastors and teachers, everyone's trying to staff things here and there, we're all like resumes, reputations, you name it, referees, everyone is interested in everybody else's stories going on and, and selecting somebody to do something. But I tell you what, there is something so unique. Even poor Samuel gets caught up in the Saul mentality. Look at him. Look at him. Surely that's the Lord's anointed. And God says, whoa, 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 slow down, mate. It's not about how they look. It's what's going on on the inside. Stop being shallow. Look for substance. Um, And look for something deeper. Look for something, the, the heart that beats deeper. And I tell you what, there's not too many examples in life where you can really see this happen. But I want to point out one um, here. Anyone know who this guy is? If I told you this guy was the world's best NFL player, would you believe me? For those who are hardcore uh, NFL players, this is none other than Tom Brady. Five-time Super Bowl champion, still playing today, is considered the world's ever greatest quarterback in sport. Um, Some say he's probably one of the greatest athletes in American sport. Um, But I want to point out where he was drafted. Out of 200 people that could be drafted into the NFL, he was drafted at 199. He was known as what a compensatory selection. Like, what have we got to lose type of mentality. Roll the dice on this guy. Um, Look at him, he's skinny as. Looks like a dweeb. Looks like he didn't wouldn't pass through <laughs> PE, um, but somehow, somehow this guy is an absolute champion. Because what they soon learn about Tom Brady is, notice this, he was the most arrogant guy. It could seem arrogant, but it was confidence. As soon as he got drafted at 199, he went up to the general manager Robert Crafter, who's still in charge of the New England Patriots, and he said, "This is the best decision your organization ever made." And they're like, "Oh, mate, deep talk from 199, like." Uh, uh, but the guy's gone on to win five Super Bowls and to be considered the champion. And it wasn't for the coach. 
famous coach Bill Belichick, and they have this, this amazing relationship, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Um, Belichick says, look, talent sets the floor, but character sets the ceiling. And he says, I can find people with talent, but it's one thing to find someone who's teachable and the character to go there. Brady didn't necessarily start out with all the tools to be a great quarterback, but what between the ears, and some would say his heart, was he was teachable, he was determined, and he was willing to learn. He got his first opportunity as quarterback and never lost it. He's had it till this day, winning championship after championship. And it's very much like this Samuel moment where he stands there and he's looking at Elab and he's looking at pick one out of the draft of future kings. Except he's looking and he's like, man, this guy, he's got it all. And he goes through all the brothers. And eventually he gets to the end. And in this humorous part, if we read it in verse 10, it says, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Did you bring all the boys in? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he's with the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him, get him. We're not moving until he's here. And I love it because even his own father, talk about being dissed by your parents. It's like, bring all the boys in and you stay out. Like, <laughs> and the boys are in and like, no, nah, we haven't found a king. Oh, by the way, there's still one out hanging out there by the sheep. And out comes David. Um, we have no real idea what it was like except in verse 12 here for you ladies. They brought him in and it said he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. Who knows what ruddy is, but I tell you what, if you drop those compliments, you're going to go places. Very ruddy. Um, formal coming up, anyone? Well, looking very ruddy. Um, ruddy with beautiful eyes. Um, and it, the Lord said to him, arise, anoint him, for this is him. Man, ruddy kid with nice eyes, Probably has no idea what is going on. Come called in from the sheep. Oh, no, I'm probably in trouble again. Um, cracks open this horn and pours oil on his head. And is like, that's it. You're the next king. What? You're the next king. And it leads you to this point, place where it's very awkward for David. David is anointed as king, but he is not appointed as king. David is anointed as king, but not appointed as king. There's some times in life where God places a calling on us, and you feel an anointing, and you know, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm here for. But you are not yet appointed to that position. I don't know if any of you have been in that tension where you know God has placed you there, and you've got a strong calling. This is why I'm here. But the appointment, the position, the job yet hasn't come. You're waiting. You're hanging around. It's like, where is... How come they're not paying me? What, what's going on? I, you know, I, the, the anointing is there, but there is no... But David goes back to the field as a king, looking after sheep. Sitting there going, what? I'm anointed as king, but I'm not yet appointed as king. And let me speak to young leaders um, this morning. Anyone who's in any type of position who knows they have an anointing, but you work under someone who has the appointing. There's times when you have to sit there and you have to support your leader even though you have an anointing and you know and you may be confident to know that that's where you feel that God is leading you next. And this is what I love about David. David has plenty of times to undercut Saul. I mean, he finds him 
having a crap in a, in a cave and doesn't kill him because he has so much respect for the appointment. So you respect those above you, even though you are anointed and you may be below them. For older leaders, you may be appointed. You've got to recognize the anointed. And your job is to make room at the table for the younger leaders to come through and go sit down. Join, let's listen, let's learn and recognize the anointing and not be threatened by it. Saul spends a ridiculous amount of resources chasing David because he's scared of him. Because he sees the anointing, even though he has the appointed. And so wherever you sit on that spectrum, you need to trust that God is leading those that are in charge, even even though it may not look like it. And you need to trust those who have no position, but God is calling them. It's it's this spirit-led ability to see and understand people on their journey. Don't diss someone who's above. It's so Australian to pull them down and go, I have no idea what they're talking about above. Like, the appointment is there for a reason. Respect the appointment, because that's the biggest sign that people can see that you're anointed. God puts David in this awkward position, and it goes on for years, where he is anointed but not appointed, and this tension between him and Saul. At first, Saul loves it. He thinks he's great, because David ends up back at the sheep, but then not long after that, Word gets around, the presence of the Lord is on David, and Saul is a grump. And Saul is having one of his, you know, melancholic moods, and he's just like, life is hard, and he just needs a moment, doesn't have Spotify, so he calls in David, finds out that David plays the harp, rolls him in, and David calms him. And we find there that David finds himself in the throne room from the field. And he's probably the first time starting to sit there and look around and realize, this is what kings roll like. This is okay, I got an understanding. And instead of rolling in there a bit like, hey Saul, you're talking to the next king. He just sits down, shuts up and plays. And he does what he's told. And Saul likes him so much that he's like, hey, you want a part-time job? Between looking after sheep, playing music for me, you can be my armor bearer. And instead of having an uh, entitled attitude, <laughs> excuse me, you're talking to the future king, he does it. You see, anointing produces humility. It produces a servant-like attitude. What can I do to help? What can I do? You don't walk around like you're, big, you're the next guy, big chief in town. It is this humility that, that rolls and people see it. People recognize it. Any opportunity to serve is an opportunity for someone with an anointing to step into their calling. And so we have David stuck from the field. He comes not only to a prophet, but then he gets called back from the field to a throne room where he has a part-time music and armor gig for the king. We get to chapter 17. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to head to chapter 17. Because... David then hangs back out in the field uh, on his sheep stint and things start to get into chaos for Israel. Israel is at a point where it's really up the creek without a paddle when it comes to the Philistines. They've, they've, they've started this, this battle and it was what they call representative battles. It's like the original Pokemon or some random thing where you roll out your best person and they roll out their best person and whoever wins out of that battle, you go, okay, we surrender. Like it's... Um, I send Goliath as tribute. It's like some weird, 
like type of way different to anything that we've ever had. It's it's almost like a negotiation. We'll send first our best negotiator to the UN. But here we have this Goliath figure that comes. You may have heard that if you've never read the story before, you may have heard of the phrase uh, Goliath, David and Goliath. Well, this is the story. By the time we get to, to verse 1, it says, The Philistines have gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered and they around Judah, and they camped in this place, and it was really in a valley. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up a line against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and the Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there came out from the camp, the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath. Now, there's cubits, and if you want to have some fun this afternoon, you can translate how big and tall. The guy is just a beast. Just straight out, uh, they feed him. <laughs> they just, I don't know if he comes out of a cage. Who knows what happens? But I, I try and put your own imagination on I'm thinking who you would least like to fight <laughs> when it comes to... He rolls out, they roll out a monster truck and you're sitting in like a, you know, uh, Corolla and, and they're like, you're going to take them on and it's just, it's not going to end well. And it's fear mongering that, that rides off with Goliath. Goliath doesn't even, not only is he just, he's big physically, he's got a big personality. He talks big game. He gets up there and he mouths off to the Israelites every morning. Hey, you want to go? <laughs> and just trash talks them and gets into them. Um, and here they are just paralyzed. <laughs> Analysis by paralysis, because they're sitting there looking at him going, I don't know how we beat this guy. Like, and we don't know what to do. Um, we, maybe if we sit still, he won't notice us. And they just, you know, it's like, don't do anything. And here we have David rolling in the fields. That's what David does, rolls in the fields. And his dad calls him in. And he's like, hey, I want you to go into your brothers. I've got some food for them. Take it, take it down to battle. He's like, oh yeah, I can do that. Uh, rolls in with some food, um, the original Uber Eats, um, and he comes in. And he's like, mate, um, we're here. It's it's an opportunity uh, to you know look after your brothers and see what's going on. David was the youngest. It says in verse fourteen, he had three older brothers that went to battle. Remember, there's a, a number of brothers. He's the youngest. Scripture likes to remind us, he's the youngest. He's ruddy as well, beautiful eyes. He's the youngest. Rolls into town uh, with his Uber Eats, and in verse 14, it says, The three old elders followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistines came forward and took a stand morning and evening. 40 days. Like, they honestly don't know what to do. It's a stalemate. I don't, th we don't really understanding any type of this type of thing i mean the most nervous we get is when you buy a house and you wait for the cooling off period to end like it's we don't really understand this constant tension over time where you sit there and you you don't know what to do and you can't really do anything anyway it's helpless and it's hopeless like you really got nothing going for you so all this is going on and David rolls up, and Jesse said to David, take some food. And in, by the time we get to verse 19, it says, Now Saul and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Eli, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took provisions and went. Jesse had commanded him, 
And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. So the first thing David hears when he rolls in at 9 o'clock in the morning um, is he hears the war cry go out. And he's like, what the is going on? Who is this guy? And he hears talk, constant talk. Goliath just ripping into them, giving them a piece of his mind. And Israel uh, is, is just lining up there, doing its usual thing. And I love David. And this, this is such a cool thing about David. David, he heard him. And in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and they were afraid. Have you seen this man in verse 25? has come up. Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich a man who kills him with great riches, and they'll, see, and they'll give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. David just walks up and is like, Who is this guy? Anyone who's booked in to fight him next? Like, why is no one sorting this out? In almost naivety, he is just like, are you going to let him speak to you like that? This uncircumcised Philistine just gets up there and rambles on a whole bunch of rubbish and you, none of you saying anything, none of you doing anything. And it shows this really cool insight into what David is like. It shows what youth is like. When you're young and you just look right into things and the ability to, to, to see something in a whole different perspective. Um, with, with no fear, he talks. But I want to suggest today, quickly, as we roll through the story, that the field that David spent all his time in produces his ability to beat all the giants of the day. There is giants in this story, and more than one. I'm going to highlight four giants. There's Goliath, he's the obvious. But here are four giants that David conquers because he spent time in the field. First giant is the giant of fear. Everybody is afraid, and David rolls in, and he's like, here we go. Let's take him on. And they're all like, are you for real? And he goes, yep, what's wrong with this guy? How can you let him talk that way? David somehow does not have the analysis by paralysis. He does not have the fear. He, does, he's not, he doesn't appear to be afraid, which is really weird but what is really cool is you see that with David he's not looking at Goliath David is looking at God and he's looking at the things he's saying about God and he's like well if it's the God I know this guy's a midget like this guy can't take him and he has this ability to see that fear and the perspective that God gives him he looks way beyond the problem and he tells God how big his problem is and he's like God look at this that's not, that's not that much of a problem. Because God is far bigger. Um, and the giant of fear just seems to not even exist because you can see. You can see that God is so much bigger than your problems. I don't know if someone has problems here, but I do. And it's great to know that the times when we look in, in uncertainty or someone is challenging us or something is difficult, that God is so much bigger than the problems that we face. We get to the next giant. We have the giant of family because this one is the most difficult because your biggest critics are always closest to you. He gets down there and he starts talking about how he's going to take on Goliath and they look at him and it's his older brother and he's like, what are you doing here? Don't you just look after a few sheep? 
classic put down. The youngest brother, yeah, you and your like three sheep that you roll in the field with is like, what are you doing here? Shut up and go home. That's essentially what it is like. And instead of David going, wanting to pick a fight with his brother, doesn't distract him from what God is calling him to do. And recognize that David is completely aware that his biggest critics come really close. It's the ones, the friends, it's the people in the church, it's the people that are so close to you that sometimes give you the hardest and difficult and they don't get it and they don't understand what God is calling you to do and they're like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing this? And you're like, but if you know, you go. The giant of family. David doesn't get distracted with the brothers pulling him down. But then we get to the giant of failure because he rolls in up to King Saul and King Saul is like, hey, you want to do this? And David's like, yeah, I'm ready. Let's take this guy. He's like, oh, good. Well, let's deck you out. Let's deck you out in some armor. Remember, what was David's part-time job? Shepherd and armor bearer. And he was part-time armor bearer. And Saul whacks him in his armor. And David's like, this is ridiculous. Like, I can't even move. This is, this is not me. And we learn that David is fully confident to fight in his own skin. He says, no, 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 this isn't me. I'm going to do it my way which is another sign of people's anointing, sometimes not being afraid to do it their own way because they know God is leading. And with confidence, he turns down the, o- the, the overuse of resources and says, let's keep it simple. Let's just follow through. And he turns down the resources of extra armor. And then, of course, grabs those five smooth stones and then only needs one, winds up, clocks the guy in the head, um, and then grabs his sword and cuts his head off. And he faces his biggest giant, fame. Because they start singing. Saul kills thousands, a thousand. David kills 10,000. Saul kills thousands, David kills 10,000. This is bigger than slotting a field goal at State of Origin. This guy is now the poster boy of Israel. You knock off Goliath, you are the new Goliath for Israel. (laughs) You are the poster boy. He's gone from being in the field to being on the battlefield and not realizing the significance of what he's done. He has the character to not be distracted by all those other giants and also to handle the fame that comes his way. You think how many people's lives get ruined by going viral and you think about David and how calm and low-key and his ability to end back up with the sheep in the field. You see, it's very cool. When you look at David's life, the fact that he is anointed but not yet appointed, it says in verse 16, um, chapter 16, verse 18 and 19, then one young man said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skilled musician. He's a mighty man of valor. Look at the way they talk about him. Probably like 15, 16 years old. He's a warrior, one prudent in speech, a handsome man. There's that word ruddy again. And the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messages to Jesse and he said, send me your son David who is with the flock. By the time we fast forward to the story, I'm giving you the bigger picture and you'll fill this in over the next couple of weeks. It says, the men of Judah came out and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. By the time we get to 2 Samuel 2, by the time we get to chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, they say, so all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron and the king David made a covenant with them and before the Lord in Hebron and they anointed David king over Israel. David has three anointings. Three anointings. But the last two anointings are pretty much appointings. 
Because the first anointing that was all that mattered, I've called you, are you willing to follow me? And from the last appointment to being officially king of Israel, from if we work all the way back, scholars suggest it was up to 15 years. 15 years, David was told he was going to be king and he had to wait until he actually received the position of being king. He was given Judah as a practice, and then he was given Israel because it was a promise. And it's really amazing to see that when God calls people, it's not a microwave calling of leadership. You know, just punch somebody in, put them in for two minutes, and they come out, and you're like, oh, here we go, it's all done. Off to the next one. It's a pressure cooker. It's slow. David has lots to learn, and if you study Right up to chapter 5, he spends most of his time running and hiding in a field. He writes in hills and valleys and hides in caves. David learns in the field. And my question this morning to you is, what is your field? Not what is your profession. What is your field where God puts you in that field, in that area, and he says, I've got a calling for you but this calling is going to work in you before it works through you. I've got work to do of you. The humble work of sitting there tending the sheep, the humble work of hiding in a cave, the humble work of finding the downtrodden and discouraged. David ends up with a whole bunch of people that are depressed and he has to look after them. David goes through the crazy highs and lows all in a field before he gets the throne. And too often we eye off the throne without wanting to work in the field. And God is calling us and placing us, and we have to recognize the fact that when we're in the field, that is no less of a calling. That is no less of a calling. When churches ordain people, all of this is man's recognition. What's most important is when you were in the field, it is God's recognition. Don't worry about man's recognition. It takes 15 years for them to recognize what David has known from day one. God has called me. And he gets on with business. Don't spend all your time trying to fight for man's recognition because if you are anointed, they'll they'll get there. Man is always so much slower than God. (laughs) Our denomination is slow. But man is slow. We take years to ordain people that we have known for years they have been called. Focus on anointing. Don't get disappointed with all the other stuff that comes with it. It will come. But God's anointing on people's lives is where it is at. But God's anointing comes as a field. That's where you are. That's where you are to work. God's anointing doesn't come with a throne. Sometimes we have that picture when I get you and you get the call, that means you're going to get the position. doesn't always work that way. God has a work to do in us. So I want to leave you with this thought. If God can trust you in the field, He can trust you on the throne. Those pivotal years for David when he was a nobody that nobody noticed. Dad didn't even recognize him, but God saw him. A nation of Israel and Samuel couldn't even recognize him. God saw him. His brothers couldn't even see the potential in him. God saw him. Goliath looked right through him and thought, what a waste of time this midget is. God saw him. 
Don't be afraid when it's times when you're in positions where it's quiet, it's lonely, and you feel like no one has forgotten about you. Not getting the attention at school, not getting the job, not getting the position. When will they recognize my ministry? What will they do? God seeks. And because he can work with you in the field, he can do a work in you there that he can never do on the throne. And then when he places you, you can handle any giant. Fear, family, family, failure. In fact, David's biggest mistakes all happened on the throne. David's best years in ministry and in life when he followed God in the field. Don't be lured into thinking it's better on the throne. It never really is. It's harder. The temptations come. He has an affair on the throne. He has, his family life is a mess. But in the field is where he's faithful. In the field is where he writes his psalms. Praise God for the field. We, we, we turn, oh, the field, oh, I just want to get out there. I want to get to that next level. I want to move up. Oh, okay. Wait, enjoy it. Because the throne isn't that much better. The throne isn't that much better. God will put you where he needs you to be. You just need to trust in his leading and guiding. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the fact that as we refresh takes this journey, looking at the life of David, that David starts at a place of complete openness to you. And the fact that you place him in a, in a position, in a place where he's, he's just so willing. And Lord, we ask that you, for some of us that may be older, that we return to that willingness to, and that zeal to just, to follow you wherever you lead. Lord, I thank you for those that have been appointed in our midst to hold positions and leaderships on thrones and in, 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 in many ways. And I thank you for their ability to lead and to guide. And I thank you for those that are on a journey of anointing where their they're calling that God has placed on their life. As you've placed them in a field. For some of us, Lord, we've, we're in this situation where we feel like we've been anointed, but we haven't been appointed. And we, we, we don't know how to feel about the field that you have placed us in. Do we need to move? Do we need to change career? Is it a, what, is it a step up? Is it a step down? What does it mean? But Lord, help us to rely on your calling and know that you have work, you have a work for us to do right where you have placed us. Lord, help us not to look over the menial tasks of looking after sheep, sweeping floors, moving chairs. The small stuff matters. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that David is a reminder to all of us that the small stuff matters. Because what you can do with a small stone, we will never know until we take on Goliath. And thank you for a David who is so willing to be used by you. And Lord, I just ask for an anointed be to be poured out on each and every one here as they continue to follow your leading and guiding. Lord, we get caught up in the attention of man and, and all the, the affirmation that they give and the recognition that they give. But Lord, I thank you for those who are faithful to stay in their field and do what they are faithfully called to do. Lord, I lift up our, our young leaders that are, that are coming before us and I ask that you give them the ability and the faithfulness to uphold those that are appointed above them. And Lord, I pray for those who are appointed above us. May they make room at the table for those young leaders who, who need a seat there with, with vision and dreams and youthful naivety to look at problems and not see the fear in Goliath, but to see how big God is. 
God, just bless this community, bless the school, bless the church here, and just bless each and everybody's individual lives as we go and represent. I thank you that our biggest witness is just being anointed in the presence of you. May that presence carry us through this week in all the challenges that we face, and all the giants that we face. May we continue to trust that the anointing that God puts in the field guides us through anything that will come our way. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.